I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Ines Stepman. I'm Jeremy Carl. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have, as always, a big show because the news cycle refuses to quit. We're grateful to Jeremy for joining us in Josh's stead. We're going to start today but with the Trump indictment. I'm going to walk us through a little bit of that and get the group's thoughts on everything as we're recording this. On Tuesday, uh, Trump is expected in a Florida courthouse, actually just in a matter of hours. So this is changing on a minute-by-minute basis, but we'll bring you the latest as of now. Uh, ben is going to talk to us about the Biden bribery cover-up, another story that is changing on a minute-by-minute basis and getting uh, very little attention in the corporate press. So there's a lot to unpack. Inez is going to talk to us about the culture war gaslighting that's going on. Fantastic topic. I can't wait to dive into. And Jeremy is going to give us a little preview of perhaps what we can expect from the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling that is uh, coming up really, really quickly. So with that, I will toss it to myself uh, and start with the Trump indictment. Again, as this is happening uh, as we're recording. Uh, Donald Trump is expected in a Florida courtroom in a matter of hours because he was indicted last week. Uh, we know that because he broke the news himself. And then the indictment was unsealed on Friday with a press conference from uh, the special counsel, Jack Smith, who we've all been told is, is very serious and would not bring the case unless he felt it was a slam dunk. Well, what does that slam dunk look like? 31 charges against Donald Trump of the Espionage Act. And I think Eli Lake had a really good point when he said, uh, you know, actually, as as silly as Trump may have acted, uh, this statute, the Espionage Act, as the left has long pointed out, is written in such a way that Donald Trump may indeed be guilty of these very serious charges that carry prison sentences, hefty prison sentences, mind you, uh, because of the way the statute is written. And the statute is written in a ridiculous way. And I feel like that's been pretty clear to all of us, Uh, not just since Julian Assange, but since Eugene Debs. We could go back decades here. Maybe there's some disagreement on Debs at this point (laughs) in in the national conservatism circles. But uh, the Espionage Act is a really ridiculous uh, statute to charge Donald Trump with, especially in light of how uh, federal law enforcement has treated Hillary Clinton, has treated Joe Biden. I do think it's very clear that uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden treated Uh, the sort of classified documents differently. Um, I think that's perfectly clear. Uh, But we still actually, as we're talking about this, haven't heard a ton from Trump's defense. The media has sort of swarmed and rallied around uh, the feds in this case. But, uh, you know, it's not it, it wouldn't be inconceivable for the DOJ and for a special counsel in this case to take things wildly out of context. Uh, It wouldn't be inconceivable for them to uh, have, you know, put up some charges that they're not entirely able to defend when we see information that we don't know, we don't know yet. Uh, So I don't know whether that's going to happen. They don't know whether that's going to happen either. But we do know that the Espionage Act, 31 charges of the Espionage Act, is is absolutely absurd. And I think it's important that those two things can sort of be true at the same time, that Donald Trump could have acted absolutely foolishly, not that anyone, even his own voters, would be surprised to learn that, um, and that also charging a former president, the first indictment of a former president on 31 counts of the Espionage Act is absolutely 
absurd as well. Um, and I think both those things can be true at the same time. Some more basic facts, although people probably know them at this point. Um, Donald Trump is accused of uh, obviously having taken all of these classified documents, some of which are alleged to include nuclear secrets, um, relationship, a relationship with Iran, uh, with other foreign powers, and shown them off. And in the indictment, it talks about showing them off to journalists. Um, it talks about, you know, keeping them in a bathroom. There's pictures in the indictment of the Mar-a-Lago bathroom sort of stacked with boxes of documents, some of which are alleged to be classified. And this is where you get into Espionage Act territory. Um, so we actually have lawyers, not including Ben, just to make another one of our favorite inside jokes here um, on the panel. So I'll toss it open to you guys because you'll know sort of more of the, the legal argument of this than I do, certainly. Um, but I don't think it takes a lawyer to understand that 31 counts of the espionage act is rather laughable so let's open it up to the group see what you guys make of the trump indictment now that we're almost a week in so as a resident non-lawyer who plays a lawyer on this podcast i guess i'll i'll jump into it um obviously you know everyone has raised the notion of the double standard really the no standard justice system here where a former president and leading candidate for a republican nomination for president gets pursued by a law enforcement apparatus controlled by his predecessor, his successor, which has been after him now for uh, eight years, essentially, trying to concoct case after case to finally bring the bad orange man down. Obviously, there's a massive distinction to be drawn here, uh, not just in terms of Trump versus how then Vice President and then Senator Biden was treated in the way of the handling or mishandling of these documents and Hillary Clinton as well, but also the infamous Bill Clinton sock drawer case as well, which is maybe the closest uh, precedent that one could look towards. And the courts in that case essentially gave full deference to Bill Clinton. But I think we have to set aside for a second the legal arguments from the, the broader one, the political one, which is that in no instance in American history, would this case have ever been brought? It has never been brought. There's never been the raid of a former president's home, again, by his successor's law enforcement apparatus. We've seen all manner of ridiculous precedent that's been shattered in connection with this first of its kind federal prosecutorial and investigative effort in terms of the piercing of attorney-client privilege, in terms of Joe Biden waiving executive privilege, and on and on. And, and it almost seems as if obliterating and eviscerating those norms is part of the point. It's to normalize and desensitize us to the abnormal. I will note as well something that I've been kind of hammering on on social media, and I'll probably write up at some point, that there are these attacks now on Judge Cannon because, God forbid, some judge that might not be a regime judge is actually overseeing this case and presiding over it. And I think that telegraphs and is part and parcel of the broader effort to try and delegitimize courts writ large. And then ultimately, the Supreme Court itself, if and when this or other cases that are brought, ultimately get to that point. So there's such a pressure and coercion on those judges that they have to rule rightly or potentially even worse, I guess, recuse, uh, which would set its own horrible precedent. We could talk about the fact also the chicanery involved with the fact that the grand jury was originally convened in D.C. and the investigation took place in D.C. And then they move it to Florida at the end, which would have been the proper venue from the start. And on and on, all of this makes a mockery of the justice system. It's once again, the institutions eviscerating themselves in defense of our democracy, so-called. 
Uh, on the the merits, I guess a couple of really quick points, as Mike Davis has been arguing over and over. First of all, this should be a Presidential Records Act case, which is dealt with in a civil kind of case, not a criminal case like this. Beyond that, the obstruction issue, and this came up really in the Mueller special counsel as well. Presidents can't, you can't obstruct non-crimes. And that appears to be what's at play here. So we could talk about all these legal elements, but I think it's also worth separating the legal from the political. And this is obviously political. Everyone can see it. And it represents, it's a damning indictment of uh, our regime, but it shows you the lengths they're willing to go to prevent anyone who doesn't dare toe the party line. And for those, and, and I think kind of trying to instill Trump fatigue in people over this is certainly one aspect of bringing this case. There's a lawfare and political aspect to bring it because by the way, Jack Smith has been slapped down uh, with huge minority votes on his side, including unanimous votes against him in the past in high profile prosecutions that he's brought. Um, but you know, it is worth noting you know, essentially that this is a crossing of the Rubicon. And there's a point to it. And for the Trump fatigue argument, I just to go back to it, uh, what I would say is anyone, if Trump acted perfectly here, however we would define that, they would still find a way to concoct a case. And if and when Trump is eliminated from the political scene, however that happens at the end of the day, the next person who would fill his shoes will be subject to an equal assault, if not a greater assault as well. And I think that is worth reiterating because it goes from Trump down to the lowliest January Sixer and everywhere in between in terms of the extensiveness of this uh, pervasive assault on the Republic. Yeah, this this in some ways reminds me, or at least my fear about this particular case reminds me somewhat of what happened to Mike Flynn, right? Um, where you have a politically charged and illegitimate um, initial investigation, but then during the course of that investigation, there's some procedural um, issue or crime that then becomes what is actually tangible to get the person on in in the judicial system. Um, that's really what I'm worried about here. And that's where I, I, I mean, I, I agree with what Ben said that whoever, you know, sort of Obviously, um, Trump could have behaved much better than he did, and and these these people would still want to go after him in this this illegitimate way that is incredibly dangerous for the republic. Um, but that's why it was important, I think, to 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 take some of this a little more seriously. And and I, I'm not going to shy away from saying that you know it frustrates me um, that knowing that he had this target, knowing better than anyone else, in fact, that he had this target on his back, um, that he was this slipshod with certain things, and especially potentially making false statements to a court or to a grand jury, that would be a real serious crime that carries jail time. Um, and then finally, uh, the reason, and just reiterate what Ben said, the reason that this is, it, it almost like makes you, I wouldn't even say I have Trump fatigue, I have like Rubicon fatigue at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's, um, you know, it's obvious that we we these we're playing with incredibly dangerous forces. Um, it seems almost cliche at this point to say uh, that that these are really, really um, th these are really bad precedents to set in a republic. Not that we, you know, many of us really here believe anymore that we live in a republic, but they they are incredibly dangerous precedents, even in one very concrete way. Aside from sort of saying, "Oh no, the Constitution that we haven't followed for a very long time." Um, one very serious and pragmatic way is this: this case makes it so that Trump has to win the presidency, um, and 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 or go to jail. Like those are going to be basically the stakes. No, no republic should want to set those kinds of incentives for their leaders. Those are not incentives that um, you know 
that that uh, in which like an environment um, set by these incentives is not an environment in which peaceful transfers of power can actually happen in a democratic way. Um, and, and this is kind of what I've said from the beginning that uh, basically, if, if if you if you do break this very important norm and you're prosecuting a former president or you're prosecuting even more importantly, uh, the likely domestic political opposition you better make sure that it's for incredibly serious crimes. You have very, very uh, good evidence lined up to happen, right? Because I would rather have our, our whatever small number of ex-presidents get away with some very like ticky tack stuff that apparently all of Washington, you know, is storing the, these kinds of documents like like Joe Biden did in his garage guarded over by his convertible, right? That That's probably a bad thing. Um but but going after the, the domestic political opposition over something that's so obviously uh, happening on both sides of the aisle um, it is is just to reiterate. I mean, I, I feel like a broken record, but it is very dangerous mm -hmm. and it creates incentives within the political system to never let go of power once you have it. Yeah, um, and just really quickly, I mean, Emily, I, it was sort of um, uh, quaint in an almost refreshing way that you brought up like facts and a legal case. I was like, oh, that exists. Because to me, this is just all about politics. The politics is is everything here. Anything that's legal is really just pretextual in terms of of how we got there and and why we're here. Um, I share Inez's frustration that Trump was so sloppy. It is possible that we can have simultaneously a totally politicized prosecution and Trump being completely indisciplined. Uh, those two things are not mutually exclusive. But we shouldn't uh, kind of confuse ourselves with the facts here because the facts have nothing to do with why this case is being prosecuted and why it's important. That's definitely true. <laughs> uh, on that note, Ben, speaking of uh, where people care about facts and where people don't care about facts, there are a lot of facts people don't seem to care very much about coming out of the FBI, actually, and uh, some Republican members of the House are doing their darndest, but uh, uh, it's it's somewhat in vain when we're talking about the corporate press. So talk to us about the cover-up of the Biden bribery scandal. Yeah, so just before the Trump indictment that we've long predicted on this podcast dropped, uh, we got word that those on the House Oversight Committee had finally seen a document still partially redacted and still actually game playing from the FBI and obstructing here, a document which memorializes whistleblower disclosure, or actually informant's disclosure brought forth to the FBI back prior to the 2020 election which purports that there was a bribery scheme involving a Ukrainian oligarch associated with Burisma who bribed both Joe and Hunter Biden, Joe Biden to the tune of $5 million. And as we just learned a day before we're recording this podcast from Chuck Grassley, part of what was redacted in that document, which the FBI refused to turn over until Christopher Wray, FBI director, was faced with contempt proceedings, was that there are actually tapes that were reportedly or purportedly recorded which of Joe Biden and in, including of Joe Biden, which lay out some of this scheme. And so now we'll wait whether or not those tapes uh, arise and we're actually able to hear them or read some kind of transcript, which will probably also be redacted and which the FBI will also probably fight over uh, or try to otherwise purge from the public. Um, this is obviously remarkable if you're talking about a $5 million bribe to then vice president Obviously, the, the bribe would seem consistent with what we've seen before in terms of the Biden family's influence peddling, which is well documented, not an allegation. As the House Oversight Committee has found, even though no one really wants to talk about it, there 
were at least 20 plus LLCs set up by Biden family associates and Biden family members, through which over $10 million were received from foreign entities. And that's just concerning Chinese entities and at least one Romanian entity linked to a Romanian oligarch who himself was convicted on bribery charges. And of course, we've known for years, it's been an open secret that the Biden family has engaged in influence peddling, where family members, as the House Oversight Committee has now divulged through records they have reviewed, covering thousands of documents, subpoenaed documents from banks, showing that essentially these Biden family associates took in money from these foreign parties and then filtered it to Biden family members through these LLCs in relatively small increments, essentially so as to disguise the ill-gotten profits. And we don't know if, if the big guy got any of these profits directly or indirectly, but certainly when you have a Biden grandchild who is one of the beneficiaries of this quote-unquote business, or you have the wives or girlfriends of Hunter Biden and James Biden who have no apparent expertise in international business being the recipients of this graft. It's very clear what's going on here. So essentially, this pattern fits with what we know about this alleged Biden bribe, where supposedly it was layered through a complicated structure, uh, the receipt of the profits of the bribe. Uh, beyond that, obviously, Ukraine was part of Joe Biden's portfolio as vice president. Again, Hunter Biden sat on the board of Burisma during that time. We know about Joe Biden pressuring leadership there to fire the prosecutor investigating Burisma and on and on. So, you know, there's a lot of smoke around this. There seem to be there seems to be 100 percent confidence among at least some Republican members of the House about the veracity of the allegation. And then we know that apparently this confidential informant was deemed to be credible by the FBI. He's worked with them for over 10 years. He's been paid over $200,000 for his service. And that's concerning uh, any number of cases that have nothing to do with the Joe Biden alleged bribe. So that's one layer of the scandal is the Biden family influence peddling. And then the other two layers of the scandal are the FBI and DOJ's apparent covering it up that they sat on this document, it would seem, in the run up to the 2020 election. And there's substantial evidence to suggest based upon whistleblower disclosures brought to Chuck Grassley and, and Ron Johnson and in part divulged last year that essentially the FBI hid their used an assessment, which they which indicated that this kind of information might constitute foreign disinformation to bury this document. That's what's been alleged by Chuck Grassley. They claimed it was disinformation when it wasn't. Then they hid it away from agents in a sub file uh, and essentially wanted this to go away, it would seem. And adding to this apparent cover up, the FBI, it seems in tandem with Democrats in the Senate and perhaps the House as well, that Democrats seem to instigate a whisper campaign that the Grassley-Johnson investigation of Biden family influence peddling in 2019 and 2020 was itself infected with foreign disinformation. And then the FBI went and had a meeting with Grassley and Johnson about this claim, which was then leaked to the press to try and discredit their probe as disinformation. So there's a long running backstory and context to this alleged bribe scheme. And then there's also, of course, the FBI's stonewalling today. Um, first, essentially, they would not admit whether there even was such a 1023 of this document memorializing this alleged bribe. Uh, then they offered to give briefings about confidential human sources broadly. Uh, then they still would not release the document and said that the House Oversight Committee had to narrow its subpoena. 
and on and on until finally contempt proceedings were going to be brought and there were draft contempt, a draft contempt resolution put forth. And then that forced FBI to come to the table, but they still did not make the document unredacted and readable for the entire House Oversight Committee, as we now know, because Chuck Grassley has seen the actual receipts and tells us that one of the footnotes redacted in the document shows that there are actually tapes to back it as well. So it's scandal upon scandal upon scandal here. And I just make a couple observations and then turn it over to the group for your takeaways, what ought to happen next, whether this means anything or not. One of them is, isn't it curious that all roads always seem to lead back to Ukraine? Again, from Biden managing that portfolio and Hunter Biden having his seat on a Burisma and this alleged bribe to the first impeachment of Trump, Ukraine gate impeachment 1.0, and now to the war in Ukraine and Biden's dedication to funding that war and the regime's interest, by the way, in perpetu seemingly perpetuating it rather than bringing it to a close consistent with the U.S. national interest. Second thing point I'll make is it now should be abundantly clear why Joe Biden was chosen as the regime's figurehead. And that's because he was totally compromised and transparently so. Compromised on multiple levels, by the way. One is in terms of foreign influence peddling. And then the other is probably in terms of his cognitive ability, quite frankly, when you see how he operates on a day-to-day -day basis. And this makes him a totally controllable non-entity because the regime has total leverage and power over him. But it also makes him totally, ex totally expendable, essentially, because they have all the dirt on him. So it is the perfect, decrepit illustration, personification of the regime. But it also makes sense why he's been the figurehead. And on that note, I'll turn over the group for any and all takeaways associated with the bribery allegation or beyond. Well, I'm I'm a little bit more black pilled on this than you are in terms of our ability to pin this on Joe Biden. I mean, I think Joe Biden has been in D.C. as a hyper insider for over a half a century, and I think it is. Um, I almost feel like it's a piece of bait that's being handed to us. The notion that we are that he would have done something so sloppy. Now, I don't dispute the substance that he may well have been bribed, and certainly the family influence peddling, as you point out, is, I mean, it's its totally clear what's going on. So I don't, I don't question the substance at all, but whether we are going to get any sort of smoking gun or even a quasi smoking gun that is gonna suggest that uh, you're gonna be able to trace 5 million to Joe Biden in the same way that I am totally unsurprised that uh, Trump was as sloppy as he was, I would be very surprised to find Joe Biden this creature of the deep state for so long would be so sloppy as to, um, you know, kind of make it that easy for us. But look, I hope I'm wrong. Um, well, so a couple just uh, facts that were part of what Ben laid out, but I think are worth sort of underscoring again. One, um, the guy from whom this or gal, we don't know, I'm assuming, um, the, the informant from which this came was somebody who was paid repeatedly for good information, right? So there's a credibility uh, aspect to this um, that didn't even exist, of course. I mean, you know, it's almost sort of pointless to point out, but of course did not exist with the Russia hoax um, and 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 with the Steele dossier and all of that, which the FBI took very, very seriously. Um, here you have an informant that has been paid over and over again for credible information, whose information was good um, and and an investigation that was closed very quickly and then sort of a rabbit trail laid for, for uh, you know, tying this thing, saying, because because this document came up during the course of something that Rudy Giuliani, um, the documents that Rudy Giuliani submitted uh, to to the FBI, that like there was an attempt in the media to tie those two things together. This is a totally separate document and a totally separate informant. 
Um, and the second thing uh, that that uh, beyond the facts that I would point out is just to some extent, the House is impotent here to do anything about it. Um, the worst thing they can do is bring impeachment proceedings, right? They can hold them in contempt, but we already have the holder uh, precedent, right? Nothing. They, they don't actually have a mechanism for punishing the FBI for refusing to comply. Um, now, we have the one outlier case of of, of uh, Steve Bannon, who who was sent to jail for this, but because of all the reasons, um, all the reasons that uh, we, we cover on this show every week, it's unlikely that we're going to, to actually get a prosecution in that way um, here. But, but essentially, the FBI is withholding information even from this committee. This document has only been, you know, available in a redacted form to a certain number of members of Congress. Um, and, and so there, there's there's uh, this game going back and forth where the FBI is hiding as much of this as possible. Um, I suspect in the end of the day, if the political situation and the ability to actually punish the FBI changes, then we might be able to proceed with something here. But until there, there's essentially this game that is based on the, the notion that that the rules, like the sort of norms and rules of law are still in place between these two political actors, and they really aren't. Um, so until there's a political way to actually fire people, change you know the, the entire um, sort of structure of the FBI, and obviously to use, fully use the political tools that Congress does have at its disposal, I doubt we will actually get um, the the essence or the, the information of this document out um, and and for that reason, I'm I'm a little uh, I, I'm I'm always a little skeptical of like whatever whether it's Republicans or Democrats whatever is said on TV about this document that we can't see um, right now that isn't even been shown in its full form to members of Congress like I I, I um, there's obviously a lot of like media sort of stuff going on that may or may not reflect what's actually in that document but um, I, I think until we have a better we have a better club um, this this uh, this sort of story is likely to go nowhere. I'll just say um, to Jeremy's point about whether a smoking gun, if it was out there, would matter. I think no. I, I think we have smoking gun after smoking gun from Hunter Biden's laptop, not about Hunter Biden, but about Joe Biden himself over and over again. And then we have reporting that augmented things that were pretty obviously smoking guns from the laptop. For instance, you have uh, Bobolinsky coming in right away. We have photographs, calendars, everything. I mean, it's really all right there. We know what was happening and uh, it's very clear, but it, the media is utterly disinterested in it. And that allows the Biden administration to skate by um, because the average voter doesn't learn the severity of the corruption and the Biden administration doesn't have to answer for it, period. They don't have to worry about it um, in any other time period. I know you can do this a million times over with Donald Trump, but like in any other time period, what happened with Joe Biden, not the Biden family, uh, not Hunter Biden, obviously they're all involved, but what the evidence suggests Joe Biden did um, already is is disqualifying a million times over, but it's these are not normal times and uh, the president of the United States in substance um, is absolutely compromised. Whether that means he's doing anything and he's acting on uh, how he's compromised is a different question, but he absolutely is. And there's, there's no question about that at this point. Um, with that, and as I'm going to kick it over to you. Yeah, so we have kind of the the return of of the establishment into the corporate, you know, sort of media circuit. Paul Ryan on CBS um, making making some remarks about the direction of the the Republican Party, um, and so he, he went on CBS and and he says uh, some some comments which I'm going to read that I think are actually. I can't believe that this view is still around even within Washington, D.C. for very pragmatic reasons. I'll lay out 
after I read his comments, but um, he's asked about some of, of the um, things that have been happening in Florida and, and in other red states about um, protecting children from sexual material in school, for example, um, girls sports in public schools and, and preventing biological males from participating in them. Um, so he asked some of these questions about it and he says, quote, I'm not a culture war guy. I think it's really polarizing. Um, he said, I'm worried about, you know, the future of the country and China. There are big policy problems that we need to tackle if we want to have a great 21st century for this country. Um, so I, it, there's, again, this polarization um, or this this split between, quote unquote, the real issues, the important issues and cultural issues in this country. I mean, so I, I guess I have two remarks, one on the importance and, and versus the downplaying of these issues. And second, that they are, quote unquote, polarizing um, so on the first point, uh, they are critically important um, as much as this country is threatened by corruption and a double standard of, of the legal system we were just talking about. And those are very like immediate political problems. The reason that we're here at all is because we have surrendered on the, the basic cultural commitments that made up the American way of life. Um, and and that's the reason that we've ended up here. Uh, and, and furthermore, it is a very like actual pragmatic boot on a lot of people's necks. I think it's the wrong view to think that these cultural issues uh, only matter to quote unquote elites. They only matter in sort of political uh, back and forth. Uh, the reality is I think that average Americans, um, ordinary voters feel very much the constriction of what they are and are not allowed to say and observe and even obviously true things like men and women are different. Um, you can get fired uh, in most major corporations in America for observing this, even not on the clock, but like on your social media, for example. Okay, so um, I don't think that this is an quote unquote elite issue. I think this is something um, that ordinary Americans care very much about and feel in their day to day lives. And there's this sort of distaste or dismissal of the importance of that issue. Um, you know, and then second, in terms of it being relatedly, in terms of it being polarizing. Um, it's actually polarizing in the media class. It's polarizing in the elite. It's not polarizing um, to voters. These issues are not polarizing. We see this in poll after poll after poll. Actually, these issues like protecting children from sexual content in schools, what the left derisively calls, quote, banning books, right? Um, that's actually an issue where you can get support from moderates, from independents, and even from a lot of Democrats. So those are not the, the polarizing issues. Uh, the polarizing issues are, are the probably Paul Ryan's fiscal agenda. Um, that is not to say that it's not a good fiscal agenda. It may be good, it may be bad, right? That it's a whole separate discussion. But as a matter of fact, and I think acquiescing to the frame of, of sort of saying, oh, these issues are divisive, these issues are polarizing, that's actually not true. Uh, these are issues in which Americans, large majority of Americans have come together. It, they're only polarizing or divisive or considered extreme or out of the mainstream uh, by a certain segment of elites and especially in the media where people who are, are um, sort of right of center on economics and left of center on, on cultural issues are the norm. Um, that's the middle of the sort of the media class, but that's not the median voter. It's not the middle of the country. We we have social, you know, social uh, science study after si science study. We have poll after poll, right? I don't like to rely on quote unquote the polls, but when you have so many of them over and over and over again, and in fact, all the recent polls throw, show that 
far from being, um, you know, sort of a, a dying or polarizing issue. This issue is actually consolidating where you see Democrats moving back in the direction and independents moving back in the direction of conservative views on a lot of these culture war issues. Even among Gen Z pollers, you're seeing a, a sort of, um, you know, backlash to how far uh, a lot of these these leftist cultural positions have taken. So this is not the divisive thing to talk about. This is the politically smart thing to talk about for Republicans. Now, obviously, you can talk about it in a stupid way versus a smart way. Uh, but I just don't I, I can't believe that there's still, um, you know, people and I guess Paul Ryan would be the person to do it, given that he is the literal embodiment of the GOP in 2012 as, as the vice presidential candidate. Um, but the, he's he's a walking, talking 2012 autopsy report um, for, for the Republican Party and which has been proven wrong, not only in 2016, it's been proven wrong. You know, it was proven wrong by Governor Youngkin's election in a deep blue state. Right. It's been proven wrong over and over and over again that this this idea that actually we're going to bring people together over tax cuts uh, and not talk about those icky, nasty, divisive social issues. That is the exact opposite of what the landscape and the political landscape um actually is in in the united states among real voters versus the people who go to cocktail parties in washington dc not to like slip into too cliched um um uh, sort of language but but that's really true it's, it's one of these things that's conventional wisdom and has been conventional wisdom in dc in the acela quarter for a long time and it's exactly precisely opposite of, of the reality according to every sort of analysis of where voters are on economic versus social issues and and I, I don't know um the re I want to leave time for everyone to jump in on this but I I do think that it's important to kick down this this view and not to acquiesce to the frame the framing of it every single time as like as soon as you bring up anything cultural it's quote unquote divisive and extreme Paul yeah Ryan's... I mean, oh, go ahead oh, go ahead but no, I was just going to say, I mean, I've, uh, you know, I've seen enough of it on Twitter on this that we're definitely uh, singing from the same hymnal, if I can say that about a non-theist. Um, but uh, we we are very much in agreement uh, on this particular point. I've been, you know, I've been quite involved in it. Um, it is it is exactly backwards. Um, the way that it actually works is we should be championing these very um, easy cultural issues, which are in many cases. 70-30 issues like a lot of the trans stuff. And even to the extent that they're not 70-30 issues, they are really critically important uh, issues to our base to uh, convince our base and, and show our base that we care about the things that are important to them. It's by getting credibility, by fighting hard on these sorts of issues, that then you get a chance to go and have those more difficult conversations about fiscal stuff, which are not gonna be universally popular with our base, but you can go and say, hey, look, um, you know, I've shown that I care about you. And part of, uh, you know, us caring is we, we got to, you know, we got to fix entitlements in a certain way, because they're not going to be here for your kids. And you know that I care about your kids, because I've been fighting for your kids in the public schools and whatever else. Um, so Ryan, yeah, it just has it absolutely backwards. Um, you know, super, super frustrating that this is, uh, you know, still such a prominent uh, issue, that it's still so much in the in the donor class. But I think the good news is the winds are shifting on this to a degree because the left has just gotten so extreme on some of these social issues that they have scared away uh, independents and even some of those few moderate Democrats who are out there, uh, you know, who are still breathing. Um, so I think that there's a tremendous opportunity here on these issues if we're willing to fight on them.
what does he mean he's not a culture war guy but we need to fight on china but we need to fight on x y like these are all culture war issues now i don't think he is like this dichotomy is obviously completely out of date but it's even out of date for somebody like paul ryan who is concerned about china he's from an area of the country very close to where i grew up um that has been very much affected by bad trade policies and uh you, this that's a cultural issue because you then see it trickle into opioids you then see it trickle into uh, broken families broken homes and there is no dichotomy anymore because the cultural left owns all of our institutions and uses them for their benefit um whether that's our foreign policy with china uh whether that's you know what whatever we're doing uh, it is being like pushed the cultural left is using it to push their agenda uh, so to to act as though that's not happening uh, and to say that this is there's just a, a hard uh there's just a hard brick wall between culture and, and economics um is obviously something that can only come out of the mouth of somebody who's not living the life of an average american and also somebody who's not thinking very deeply about these issues in the way that paul ryan really used to um it, it's it's just this obstinate trench warfare against everything that uh, Donald Trump has ever touched. And it's foolish and unwise. To make a couple brief points with respect to that China issue that you mentioned, Emily, wokeism, to the extent it completes its long march across every single influential institution, and it really has in many respects, although obviously we, we do have pushback now emanating, Wokeism degrades us in every single respect from ever being able to come close to counter the threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses. So it's indistinguishable, as you note, from all these other issues. And in part because it's just a truism that culture pervades every single institution. And so all of these quote unquote social issues that you might want to break apart, delineate from these other issues, you cannot. They're part and parcel of these other issues precisely because the left has made these quote unquote culture war issues a part of every aspect of our society. It's baked into the fabric of everything. So you have to fight it. And that brings me to the last point, which is that you may not be looking for the culture war, but the culture war wants you. Leftism is by nature, almost definitionally expansive. It's ambitious. It fills every single vacuum. And so it would only be natural that the most insane, extreme, progressive tenants would now be manifesting themselves across all of these institutions. That's kind of the point of it. And at minimum, even if they are losers, and I think they are losers, 70, 30, or 80, 20 issues in many instances, it still shifts the Overton window potentially. Now, on the other side, it may radicalize normies and we are seeing that happening and there is political there are real political tangible results to be seen as a consequence of that so i think at the end of the day whether or not anyone in the republican party wants to fight a culture war issue they are going to have to or they will be completely eliminated and that raises the question of does do republicans want to be anything more than controlled opposition and i think it's very clear that there is not a substantial constituency at this point for a non-culture war oriented republican party and so Republican politicians might be dragged kicking and screaming, but nonetheless, for their own survival out of their own political self-interest, I think are going to recognize the salience of these issues. And even if they don't have their heart in them, at least put up a front to appeal to their constituents or they won't be in office anymore for long. There you go. <laughs> that note, uh, Jeremy, talk to us about what we can potentially expect from the Supreme Court when it comes to affirmative action. 
Yeah, well, it's it's going to be either probably a Thursday or certainly if not then within the next couple of weeks that they'll be announcing what I consider to be, uh, you know, maybe second only to Dobbs in recent years in terms of cases that I think will be really, really uh, impactful and influential, uh, even though it may not uh, kind of manifest themselves uh, practically. But I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, and those are students for fair admissions versus Harvard and uh, North Carolina. They were two separate cases. They were then combined. Uh, and then when Kentaji Brown-Jackson uh, joined the Supreme Court, having been a former member of the Harvard Board of Overseers, they were split up again um, because she would have had to recuse herself uh, from the Harvard case. Um, but this could really make a stand in a legal way against affirmative action for the first time and against discrimination uh, really in recent court history. Um, we'll have a better sense um, when we get a better look at the um, the the sort of arguments or you know, when, the, when the pin comes down, Harvard is accused of violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as a private institution that takes public money. Uh, the University of North Carolina public institution is also accused of violating the Equal Protection Clause. And this kind of follows on Greta versus Bollinger, which was a 2003 Supreme Court case in which by a five to four margin, the court narrowly upheld um, uh, affirmative action, but Sandra Day O'Connor, for reasons that have been uh, speculated a lot about a lot in the intervening years in writing the majority opinion for the courts, sort of put this poison pill in there where she said, well, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the uh, strict scrutiny interest uh, that approved today. So that was in 2003. We're now 20 years uh, post that. Um, I think if you want to be a little bit optimistic about this case, in general, my understanding is that um, uh, opinions of the court are announced generally in order of the judges, uh, justices' seniority. Um, so the most three senior uh, justices on the court at this point are, of course, uh, Thomas, Alito, and Roberts. Uh, Thomas and Alito will, of course, be very strong, I think, based on their histories of issues like this. Roberts is a legendary squish, as I don't need to tell uh, anybody on this uh, podcast, but he has not necessarily been as much of a squish on this issue. Uh, and to the extent that he might be previewing a non-squishiness, uh, his dumb de uh, decision to uh, kind of uh, in, you know, increase the court's quote unquote institutional legitimacy on this voting rights case by voting with the left, I think in some ways in his mind is probably setting himself up to be the bad guy, uh, which is the good guy for us on this case. In 2007, um, in a case involving the integration of public schools, Roberts wrote that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So that seems pretty um, clear where he sits. Uh, I think one interesting thing here, the plaintiffs in this case are actually you know, acting on behalf of Asian American students. It's kind of an interesting thing in terms of where uh, kind of the, uh, the, the, the left and the right sit and, and you know, whether people were comfortable um, arguing on behalf of white students, which I think we're not quite uh, there, even though whites are badly underrepresented uh, at every single one of the top elite schools now compared to their percentage in the uh, population as a whole. Um, I think another kind of interesting wrinkle of this is that affirmative action, and this will be really interesting because I think anything less than a really strong ruling from Roberts uh, or whoever ends up writing the ruling would be a huge loss because this is actually, unlike Dobbs, which was a, a tough issue in terms of popularity, um, this is actually a really popular issue for the Republicans. And you can tell that because we just had in 2020 an affirmative action ballot initiative in California in which 
the Democratic Party and every luminary was up there uh, against it. The pro-affirmative action side was, you know, outspent the the anti 30 to one, you know, Biden won by 25 points and affirmative action went down 57 to 42. So uh, there is a great deal of popularity in kind of actually being merit based about uh, the approach here. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's some folks, including there's a good article in the, the most recent Claremont Review of Books uh, that kind of looks at uh, from a more skeptical position um, uh, whether we're going to actually uh, get the, the the ruling we want from Jesse Merriam. I think he makes a pretty good uh, substantive point that, in fact, even if we get the right ruling on paper, the way that it was argued, we may not get the right ruling in actuality, and that we're just going to see chipping around the edges. Uh, that's also uh, opinion shared by uh, Ryan Williams, the head of the Claremont Institute, uh, who uh, signs my paycheck. So uh, I want to give that due deference. And I think that there is actually a fair bit uh, to that. And in fact, if you want to sort of have a black pill, if you will, about this, I think it's that um, if you look at in 1996, California originally banned affirmative action and at the university level, and if you look at kind of how that played out, originally kind of there was a more merit-based approach and they've gotten very clever at designing all sorts of proxies so they can discriminate on the basis of race without saying that they're discriminating on the basis of race. Um, and um, uh, so that's that's the real uh, problem and the concern that I would have going into that. And you already see universities throughout the US kind of preparing to do that from various things they're doing from getting rid of the SAT to uh, kind of doing fuzzy things with GPAs. So that would be my uh, real concern here, but it's gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out both in the law and practically. Yeah, to, to sort of bolster um, Ryan's point on this, uh, look, the, the experiences in California, um, as you well know, so Prop 209 banned, banned affirmative action in California, uh, but, but the UC system, let alone the private universities in California, but the UC system, aggressively practices affirmative action through what they call the holistic review process. Um, and and as you, you also mentioned, we're seeing universities move away from objective measurement to the extent that such a thing is possible in terms of, of applicants um, moving away from testing, moving away from GPA reliance. Um, now, there are problems with both testing and, and GPA reliance, but they have provided some kind of standardized measure of for admissions for a long time. Um, and actually, what I find most encouraging about this, um, really, if, even if we get the best ruling possible on this, this will be just like with Dobbs, it will be the beginning of a fight, not the end of one, right? Uh, to actually enforce this in a serious way, um, will be the will will just need as as um, you know, folks on the right, um, we will need an enormous effort to actually go ahead and make sure that that ruling is enforced in universities to the best of our ability. It will require a lot of effort, so it's, it really is the beginning of a fight. Um, but in terms of, of positive things about this ruling, even outside of the four corners of the opinion, what I'm hoping is this will will move the Overton window um, on on really looking at uh, the the Civil Rights Act in certain ways. Um, and I, I think that uh, just talking about affirmative action, talking about discrimination in this more open way, where we acknowledge that that the people who are being discriminated against are largely um, Asians and whites and men. Um, 
And so I think that that would be a very encouraging conversation to have. And then there's also something to learn from the cases that were brought against Harvard um, and, and University of North Carolina, um, Carolina here. And that is that there's a lot of power in getting that kind of underlying data, whether you get it through lawsuits, whether you you find a you know a leaker to give you that kind of underlying data that shows just how much um, that there is a finger on the scale. In, in this case, in universities for um, so-called underrepresented minority applicants, I think it would be enormously helpful to get this kind of data uh, to the extent that it's available. Obviously, it's different because there's no testing and stuff, but like, for example, numbers of years of experience, previous salary, all kinds of things that people look at going in on a resume for a job, um, I think it would be enormously helpful to get this kind of discriminatory data because Functionally, we know that every major corporation in America is practicing discrimination on the basis of race. They're practicing it on behalf of Black and perhaps Hispanic applicants and against white and Asian applicants um, in many cases. So we know that most more major corporations in America are functionally breaking the Civil Rights Act or violating the Civil Rights Act. They are discriminating on the basis of race. And I think that one of the lessons from the, these these uh, cases is it's really important to get that data out there and make it obvious to people because people already know like in their guts that this is what's going on. They know people are being passed over for promotion uh, because of their race uh, in, in, in private American corporations. So even though the law will work in a completely different way um, under a, a different statute and, or, <laughs> and then under a specific title, right? employment law and title seven all of that stuff i think that that talking about affirmative action in universities and potentially getting a good supreme court uh, decision on that could be really important in terms of a, a roadmap of how to fight this uh in other institutions as well i i can't wait uh for the left to defend affirmative action right now because it's really not an argument that's going to land um the, the sandra day o'connor point is i think very often overlooked you know so even because the right has the it's sort of always on the same page about affirmative action which is that it's racial preferences and it is discrimination full stop uh so but it, but even if you get past that um the iteration of it that Sandra Day O'Connor envisioned is long past, like gone, like that, that's gone, long time gone. Um, and so the left having to defend affirmative action, whatever happens with the decision, I, I expect something along the lines of what Jeremy described, but whatever happens with the decision, the left is going to go to the mat for racism, uh, for discrimination at a time when I think uh, here at YAF, they put out a survey saying something like, 90% or 80 something percent of schools held segregated of the top 100 schools held segregated graduation ceremonies uh, just this last year. So if they want to defend that right now, by all means, great. It moves the Overton window, I think, to Inez's point. It moves the ball forward. This is a great time to be having to revisit the conversation about uh racial preferences and outright discrimination because it's crept into the mainstream in ways that go beyond affirmative action and in ways that are absolutely disgusting to the average American. So on that note, Ben, did you go yet? Um, I, I didn't. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pull out a couple pessimistic threads, as is my want, even though I can see it all the positives that have been raised including the fact that the Kendiization of the left should be on full display. And I think the American people will recoil in horror when they actually see how it's manifesting itself today. And obviously schools is just one manifestation of it. But to pull at those two pessimistic threads, um, the first is that I think it's very clear that even under the most ironclad sort of ruling, you are still gonna have affirmative action by proxy 
it is going to play itself out in probably a whole host of otherwise laughable but very serious ways. And so then the question, first of all, will illustrate the fact that the law is not necessarily going to save us from leftism. Legislation would help here. Um, for starters, there should be no federal or state funds or benefits conferred on any institution that racially discriminates. Now, that if were that to manifest itself, that would be a real fundamental shift in terms of the exercise or non-exercise of state power to confer benefits and privileges on institutions like schools. Will state, local, and federal authorities actually draft and follow through with legislation to essentially enforce what the courts might rule? We'll see. It points, though, to the broader issue that this is a cultural one at the end of the day, and law and the letter of the law and the spirit of and the law will not necessarily protect us if we don't have a culture that backs it. Set that point aside. Um, Jeremy kind of anticipated one thing that I was going to raise, which is this Voting Rights Act ruling, uh, Allen v. Milligan, which, as best I can tell, is an abomination of a ruling. And uh, Hans von Spakovsky wrote a piece talking about Justice Thomas's dissent to it. And I just want to talk about that briefly. Now, to be sure, Roberts did say the best way, paraphrasing that the best way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And there's a pretty decent track record here, I think, in other related rulings of his. However, this case is shows you disparate impact, so-called, in the way of the drawing up of electoral districts. In this case, Roberts has no problem discriminating on the basis of race. So as Von Spogofsky notes, Clarence Thomas pointed out in his dissent that the only real basis for the lower court's decision, concluding that the redistricting plan in Alabama in question diluted blacks' votes, was because, quote, it is possible to draw two majority black districts in Alabama instead of the one that this plan would have created two being more in line with the proportional representation of blacks within Alabama. But the critical question Thomas wrote is whether votes are diluted compared to what benchmark and the text of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and the logic of vote dilution claims requires a meaningfully race neutral benchmark and no race neutral benchmark can justify the lower court's finding of vote dilution. In fact, Thomas wrote, quote, the only benchmark that can justify the ruling and the one applied by the lower court is, quote, the decidedly non-neutral benchmark of proportional allocation of political power based on race. So the question is, will Roberts agree that there ought to be proportional represent uh, allocation of seats in schools on the basis of race? And it's going to be fascinating to see how he distinguishes, if he is the one drafting the majority opinion here, this ruling from the voting rights related ruling. Now, maybe this was a way that he set himself up to be the bad guy. Jeremy's probably right in terms of the cynical thinking of the chief justice. Uh, to his great um, dishonor, but we'll see ultimately when uh, the majority opinion comes down. All right, let's move over to final thoughts. Who wants to kick us off? Um, I can kick us off on a related topic. I think flows really nicely from um, what we were talking about just a minute ago with affirmative action and and my hope that um, we might be able to move this over to the private sector in some substantial way, move this conversation over to the private sector about discrimination in the private sector uh, based on race. Um, of course, that's just one piece of, of the puzzle in terms of, quote, capital. But I do think that there's, as we talked about last week, there have been some encouraging uh, signs in in the corporate space uh, that that a couple things have happened. One, one um, as a 
not to, you know, sort of repeatedly reference myself, but like, as I've been pointing out for any number of months now, um, the economic downturn is putting some kind of pressure on um, a lot of these companies that was not there during boom times. Um, In other words, they're looking more critically at their ability to, for example, piss off half of their customer base. Um, They're also looking more critically at their payrolls, right? Um, I think Elon Musk really was out ahead of this uh, with Twitter, where he fired something like 70% of the Twitter um, staff and, and really thereby revealing that um, a lot of of uh, people are are earning, and this this goes not just to the the percentage of them that are sort of the the woke commissars, right, in the HR departments, and are, are the equivalent of political officers, but even more broadly, that our our um, woke credentialing institutions are pumping out a lot of people with degrees who are then going into these companies for you know starting at a six figure salary, oftentimes, and really are not adding um, anything to the bottom line of the company. Um, so I think there's there's uh, an additional piece uh, in in the Wall Street Journal something that is is encouraging on this front. Um, the Wall Street Journal has a, a piece called "Companies Quiet Diversity and Sustainability Talk Amid Culture War Boycotts." Um, so they're they're looking at uh, not only what companies are saying outwardly, but more encouragingly, and to the discussion that we had about whether this kind of backlash against Pride Month was going to be more substantive um, or surface level, it looks like uh, the number of, um, so this is this is a graph tracking whether U.S. listing company earnings calls where executives mentioned ESG, DEI, environmental, social, uh, um, and governance, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or sustainability. So tracking the, the incidences of those words in, in, in um, sort of shareholder meeting conferences, it is way down. Um, it's way down. That's coupled with uh, listing um, and those are have been going on since this economic downturn I pointed out, but there has been a decrease in the number of jobs listed under, for example, um, you know, DEI and HR and compliance, which also suggests that companies are pulling back from hiring people um, in those capacities. All of those things I find quite encouraging among amid the sort of flaming dumpster fire that we talked about in the first half of this show with regard to the double standard, the rule of law, and just skipping across an endless number of Rubicons with regard to prosecuting the political, um, you know, sort of opposition. There's, I think right now, good reason, um, good, like actual substantive reason to have some hope that even though woke capital is one of the strongest sort of elements or or, um, weapons in the left's arsenal, um, it is also a very wobbly weapon and can be scared into doing the right thing through a combination of of smart actual state power usage and also apparently this kind of market uh market pressure um so i think that's very encouraging so i'll be really brief on the uh, on the dumpster fire um and again concede the positive points there as well and i think yeah, maybe to some extent, even though woke capital is a massive block in terms of power and influence, it is somewhat of a paper tiger in the sense that the executives, and obviously there's a spectrum here, and we've kind of talked about it for that ranges from the true believers to the people who are essentially paying for protection. Most executives probably want to avoid conflict, don't want to piss off their shareholders, don't want to see billions of dollars in market cap wiped out overnight. Uh, overnight. But they've never actually seen a backlash from the other half of the country. So in some sense, they're kind of, I think, I would hope at least, that a disproportionate percentage of woke capital, the executives there, are actually cowardly and will be responsive to actually seeing somewhat 
of an equal and opposite reaction from the right to the left's effort to use these institutions as a cudgel against their political opponents. I'm sort of following up on that, though, back to the dumpster fire for a second. You know, I put out as kind of a trial balloon. You know, let's say Joe Biden tomorrow, it was found that there actually was smoking gun evidence that he took a $5 billion bribe or a $10 million bribe or a $100 million bribe from a foreign power, a corrupt foreign power. Would he be impeached and removed the next day, let alone prosecuted then by authorities after stepping down from his office? And the fact that you can't answer with anything close to 100% certainty, I think speaks volumes about the state, the perilous state of our republic. Um, and that will not change until there is a fear on the regime side that there actually could be an equal and opposite reaction. In other words, the brazen actions that they continue to take, while I think they do reflect real fear that the other side of the country might actually be in power again, they do not expect that that other side would ever wield that power in the way that they do. And as we always talk about here, you know, I don't think any of us advocate for using the extra legal means and worse that they use. But I do think we advocate for within the law and using all legal mechanisms, exerting maximum pressure to inflict the same amount of pain on those who are engaged in truly lawless, corrupt and perverse acts that they would on us. And until that paradigm changes, I'll repeat it uh, to the end of time and probably till we're done with this podcast someday. Until there is a fear of an equal and opposite reaction, until justice is meted out and done, we will continue to cross Rubicon after Rubicon because the other side has no fear that there are any consequences to its brazen acts. Yeah, I, I'd add to that, and I, I agree with that sentiment. Um, you know, it's the culture war, the whole culture war, and nothing but the culture war. Um, you know, whether that be Biden and Trump that we were talking about, whether that be the, the specific culture war topic that Inez had. Uh, or whether that be uh, affirmative action. I mean, that's really where it is. Now, having said that, there is a a kind of really fake culture war politics that a lot of folks on the right, uh, particularly some of our electeds, love to play, where they do a bunch of um, you know very public kind of outrage theater, but don't actually deliver the meaningful wins that matter. And we certainly want to avoid that type of culture war. But in terms of fighting, in terms of real things we can do legislatively, in terms of things we can do where people lose their job over some of the, you know, trans and kids and things like that, um, to the extent that we can really put meaningful points on the board uh, in on the culture war, not just sort of symbolic outrage theater, but real political wins, uh, I think that is where we should concentrate our energies. And I think everything that we do, so that we would want to do, and even that the kind of business establishment of the party um, would like to do, it all flows ultimately from earning the trust of the base that we are going to fight for them on these issues, that we really have their interests at heart. And then when you show somebody that you have their genuine interests at heart, you can go have some of those more difficult conversations about some of these other issues that the uh, the establishment, uh, the kind of uniparty establishment almost loves to talk about. Um, but, but that's really, the, the culture war is really where I see uh, this sitting and everything that we've talked about today, to me, uh, touches on it in some way. I 
agree with everything that's been said. And so just my self-promotion, uh, I try to keep to a minimum, but we do have a new set over at Breaking Points that we rolled out this week, which is super awesome. And if you're not watching or subscribing to what uh, Sagar and Crystal are doing there on Mondays, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then when there's breaking news and over on the weekends, um, you got to check it out with the new set because we're just trying to elevate um and and ryan Grimm and i have a show on wednesdays um which is like been a blast to uh, talk through the news every week with with ryan we've been doing it for a while now so if you're if you're interested in kind of hearing the left right uh take on daily news definitely check out breaking points uh the podcast is is anywhere you get your podcasts and the youtube channel is looking extra cool these days there's like a a video monitor in the back where we can put the guests up virtually. They had Jack Dorsey on this week. Um, so anyway, all that is to say, uh, I'll do my self-promotion for the year uh, and then exit stage left. Uh, but <laughs> thanks everyone for watching today's edition of NatCon Squad. On behalf of Ben, Emily, and uh, oh, I just said Emily. Uh, on behalf of Ben, Nez, and Jeremy, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.